and I am a regular member here at MacEv. I'm not a pastor. Um, sorry, <laughs> came the wrong week. Um, now, nah. <laughs> all right. So today we're going to be talking about Genesis 18, and the way we're going to do it um, is we're going to go through the passage, kind of make some, draw out some points as we go along, and then at the end we're going to talk probably for a, a few minutes about what it means to be called by God. We've been hearing a lot about Abraham being called by God to various things. Um, And, yeah, just kind of examine, you know, if he's a good model for us and that kind of stuff. Um, So up to this point, we first met Abram and Sarai in chapter 12. And Abram and Sarai are called out of their homeland where they're worshiping idols, where their family's at, um, and God calls them to set them apart as a people for himself, um, and in order that they would, they would have land, and that in that land they would grow a nation that would be a light to the world. Um, and since then, we've seen various times where God's speaking and Abraham's obeying, and then times where God's silent, and then Abraham gets nervous, um, and he starts to try to take things, you know, to accomplish things on his own power. And so far, that's only led to trouble. But, so let's start. We're just going to read through the passage. Um, so the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may... <clears throat> All wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you may be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three saves of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Um, One thing I forgot to do at the beginning was pray. So let's take a moment to pray. Um, Lord God, we thank you for this time to just come together as a body, Lord, um, as a family in you. um, And learn more about you, Lord, and worship you. Lord, I pray that you would that you would meet us here today in your word, Lord, and that you would draw out truth from your word, Lord, um, that's practical and applicational for our lives, and that we would live in light of your truth. Amen. Okay, so in this passage, we see a few things that I underlined, um, which may be hard to see on the projector, but the Lord appeared to Abraham. He physically stood in front of Abraham and talked to him. I don't know about you, but I've never had that experience. So that's it's kind of a unique thing about Abraham's call, um, that God's actually talking to Abraham through audible words. Um, and then we get this detail about where Abraham's at. He's, he's near the great trees of Mamre while sitting at the entrance of his tent. Um, now, those trees are mentioned before in chapter 13. Um, it's the same trees that he camped out at after he and Lot split. 
That's 23 years ago. He's still in tents, and he's still by those trees. Again, there's, there's, <laughs> there's things about Abraham that are very unique. Like, I have never stayed in a tent for 23 years. I think, I mean, he has this land that's been promised to him, but he's living in it as a stranger. Um, and moving down, you see, he says, do not pass your servant by. Most, most commentators that I read don't think Abraham immediately recognized that this was the Lord. It was another stranger, another group of strangers that were passing by. And, but look all the, all the stuff he goes through for them. Um, you know, he makes sure their feet are washed. Um, he has Sarah prepare some bread. And look at this. He ran to the herd. He didn't just walk to the herd. He ran to it to pick out a choice tender calf. And then his servant hurried to prepare it. Um, you know, there's this, there's a very intentional effort going on here towards hospitality. Um, Abraham's modeling that, that aspect of godliness for us in this passage. Not sure where I'm supposed to point this. There we go. So then they ask, where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him, there in the tent. He said, whoops, there we go. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said, Yeah, pleasure. (laughs) Um, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. Um... Yeah, you can't get anything over on God. Um, so at this point, I think they're starting to understand that it's God. You know, he repeats a promise that God has given before. Um, and again, we're reminded of how old Abraham and Sarah are. Abraham's around 100 now. Sarah's around 90. Clearly past the age of childbearing. Um, you know, in Hebrews, I think it describes Abraham as, as good as dead at this point. Like, not only is he not able to have kids, but he's as good as dead. Um, and it, the, this comes up again and again and again because God, at the outset of building this, this great people for himself, he wants you to know that it's all on his shoulders. He's doing it all. This isn't, this isn't something that they could do. They tried. They came up with Ishmael. Um, but God says, no, my promise is coming through Isaac. And even though this is impossible for you to do, I'm going to do it to show my power. Um, and again, you know, go down to, is anything too hard for the Lord? Um, a lot of our problems with, with, with God come up when we either believe that he isn't good enough or strong enough to do what he says um, or to do what he wants. He's either not willing um, or he just can't do it. Um, so in this case, he's pointing out that that he is able to do it. I mean, he is the creator of the world. He spoke, he spoke the universe into existence. He can, he can bring about life when he wants to and through whom he wants to. Hey, I have a question. 
Sure. Mm-hmm. I, I keep reading over it and I might be missing something. These men don't know that this conversation is going on, or are they hearing it too? The Lord is one of these men. Oh. And the other, so, so again, most commentators think that the Lord in this passage is one of the men, he's the pre-incarnate Christ. Like he's, he's Jesus, basically, walking on earth. Um, and the other two men are angels. Oh. Okay. Sorry. That's a good, good thing to bring up. Um, any other questions? Um, later on in the passage, well, moving into the next chapter, it describes them as angels, the other two. Um, but some, some people do see a relationship with the Trinity. Um, all right, moving on. Um, so now the story kind of takes a twist. Um, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, which is where Lot had moved to, Abraham's nephew. Um, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Um, so one thing I... There's, there's a theme in here that you see again and again in Scripture. It actually starts in creation. God wants his rule to expand to cover the face of the earth. He, in the creation mandate, there's this idea of filling the earth with God's image bearers, and subduing it on his behalf. Um, and originally, that would have happened just through procreation. You know, perfect humans having perfect humans, perfect in the sense of righteous. Um, that, that's how God's image bearers would have spread. But then the fall happens. And so now, God's image bearing is not spread through having kids, but through training others to let God rule their heart. And that starts with your kids, but it moves out to your household, and eventually, if you jump back a verse, it moves to all nations on the earth. Does this sound like another passage in Scripture to you that we talk about a lot here at Macav? Matthew 28. This is, this is kind of a foreshadowing of Matthew 28. You see this again in Deuteronomy 6, actually, this idea of training your children in the way they should go, and this kind of generational um, expansion of God's rule in people's hearts. But again, Jesus describes it very clearly in the Great Commission that all of his followers are to make other followers who make other followers and the nations are become followers through that. Um, so it's not a New Testament idea. It's not a Jesus idea. It's you know a common theme throughout Scripture. <clears throat> all right. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 people in the city? 
Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So this, this outcry um, is kind of reminiscent to me of Paul's words in Romans where he says, creation groans against its decay and against the sinfulness of man. Like, no, one, no human has to raise a voice, but creation feels the weight of sinfulness in it, um, though we should raise our voice to God. Um, we also see a God who's intimately involved in his creation. He doesn't just sit back um, I don't know if any of you guys have seen, oh man, it's a, any movies about um, like Greek mythology where they have like these, these gods kind of sitting somewhere else and talking about, um, talking about the humans and then they just make decisions from afar. Um, but God is not, God's not like that. He goes down and sees, not because he has to. Clearly God knows what's going on on earth. But again, this is for our sake to let us know that there's, that we have a God who cares and a God that wants to walk with us. Um, and, then, and then you see Abraham making some very bold statements to God. Um, and it's, they seem, in a quick read, almost like accusatory. Would you really do this thing? Like, aren't you supposed to be this way? Um, but it, I think as you look deeper, you see that Abraham's trying to discover God's heart. He's trying to discover the extent of God's patience um, for the, sin, the sinfulness of man. Um, and he's also imaging back to God, God's concern for mankind. Um, we, we, we can do the same thing when we pray on behalf of our community, pray on behalf of our unbelieving family. Um, we're, we're imaging back, we're, we're doing the same thing that God does, showing concern for the lost around us. Um, but he is boldly approaching God. And as God's people, we are allowed to do that. So then, so he agrees that, yes, if there's 50 people um, in the city of Sodom, and the Lord knows in advance how many righteous people there are in Sodom. Um, so this, is, this conversation is more for Abraham's sake than for God's. But then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, his boldness is done in humility. What if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Um, so, again, you see, you see Abraham kind of 
say very humble things about himself. You know, he, he realizes he's nothing but dust and ashes. Um, but he still wants to plead with God for the, uh, for the, <clears throat> for the sake of the righteous around him. And he's also demonstrating the preserving power of God's people in the world around them. Jesus calls his disciples salt. And the purpose of that is salt as a preserving power. Um, and our presence in the world has... A, <laughs> going to use preserving again, but preserves it. Um, we, we kind of stab off judgment um, in, in our lives as we are imaging God and reaching out to others. We can bring others out of judgment and into God's grace um, through God's power, of course. And you see great patience on behalf of the Lord. Um, this is the same God who destroyed a whole world um, because of its wickedness. And that makes you appreciate just how wicked things were, because he'll save, you know, a city for some people. Um, but yeah, you see, you see a, a God who's willing to be patient with his creation. All right. There we go. So we're going to kind of just recap the story real quick and then move on to the idea of calling. Um, so again, after 23 years without the promised child, Abraham and Sarah continue to stay in tents in the land to which they were called. We have the Lord reappearing and re-promising a son. You know, the son, now they have kind of a, it's less than a year away. Um, so it's getting closer. And we have also, I didn't put it on the slide, but a reminder of God's purpose in choosing Abraham, um, which is to expand God's rule in Abraham's life but also in the, ultimately to the nations of the world. And then we see Abraham petitioning the Lord to spare Sodom for the sake of any righteous that are in it. Um, and part of that is probably motivated by the fact that he knows his nephew Lot is there. All right, so talk about calling. Um, so we use the word calling a lot, um, and it's, you know, it's not hard to see why. We see it a lot in Scripture. Um, we see it in, in Abraham's life. We see it in, in the lives of probably all the prophets. Got a, you know, a distinct call from God to be a prophet. We see it in Paul's life to reach the Gentiles. It's all over the Bible. Um, but, so, and what the, the definition I'm going to be working with for what it means to be called by God is to be given specific directions by God. Um, and so here's a question for you guys. What was Abraham called to? In the, you know, Genesis 12 through 18. Any specific things that Abraham was called to do? Leave his family, go to Canaan. Those are big ones. There's smaller ones. He was called to set up like this covenantal sacrifice. Um, he was called to circumcise. Um, so he got some very detailed instructions. He was also called, more generally, to walk before God, to keep, keep the Lord's way, and to teach his children and his household to do the same. Um, and so the next question is, is Abraham a good model for us? And we've got to be careful when we read narratives um, in the Bible, because it's not, um, 
It's not monkey see, monkey do. They're not, there's not a one-to-one application of Scripture all the time when we read through these stories. It's not like Abraham went to Egypt, so we should go to Egypt. You know, Abraham did this, so we should do this. Uh, and sometimes that's obvious, and sometimes it's less obvious. Um, but is Abraham a good model for us in terms of calling? Or are there some like unique things that maybe make him not a good one, and some general things that make him a good one? Um, I'm probably looking for too specific of an answer for you <laughs> to ask generally. But um, so in, the, in those kind of the comments that we just had, um, there are some unique things about Abraham's call. The Lord appeared to him and spoke to him, as we said before, and he gave him, you know, very, very detailed and specific things to do. Um, and it, it, the unique part of Abraham's call, it also came with unique promises for land and lineage. Um, he, ha- he was, you know, called to the land of Canaan. He was called to have a son who would go on to become, you know, the physical nation of Israel. <clears throat> but there's also common points. He was called, again, to make God his God. And he was also, in another sense, called generally to a lineage, like a spiritual lineage, um, to, to expand God's rule around him, in himself and around him. So, this will become clear why I'm making a big deal about this in a second. Um, we talk, I guess I'll hit on it right now. We talk a lot about callings and even, even kind of discovering God's specific will for our lives. You hear it in, you'll, you'll, you can read it in biographies of great Christians. They'll be like, you know, I was called to be a pastor to this people. Um, and we talk about it in our prayer requests. We want specific directions for specific decisions. We want to know, should I move to Detroit or should I you know, move to Virginia? Should I, you know, should I go to Haiti? Should I not go to Haiti? Um, and I guess I'm going to argue and eventually that we don't get those kind of specific instructions. And we, you don't even see Abraham seeking those out. The people who do get them in Scripture weren't seeking them out. They were, God wanted to do something, and he said, this is how it's going to happen. Um, it wasn't people that were waiting around for a specific answer. <clears throat> but we do have that general call. Um, and you see, you see this kind of, the part of Abraham that's commended to us is not his specifics, but his overall direction, his focus. Um, I won't read through all this, but talks about, you know, he does all these things, he trusts God, for he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. This comes from Hebrews chapter 11, which is a, a passage that talks a lot about men and women of faith. Um, and down in verse 15, um, he says, If they had been thinking of the country they left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham's focus was on the great reward of God and God's kingdom. That's what... That's what the direction of his life was. Um, and that's the part that's commended to us. And you see Jesus kind of saying the same thing to his disciples. Um, he goes through all these things, about, things that pagans worry about and chase after. And then he says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. 
So, I would argue that this, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, is the primary foundational call for every single Christian. Um, and here's why I think that. If we get this quicker, right? Because you see it repeated in various ways across scripture. You shall have no other gods before me. God is first. You do not worship any other God. So he's not just first, but he's alone. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And God is the only one who has right to be jealous, because he deserves all of our attention in life. And then love the, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength um, in Deuteronomy. Again, like Eric said, this is, this is to love God with your whole person. It's not that he's just first and only, but you don't, you don't have any reservations. Like you're not, there's no plan B. <clears throat> and I won't read through this, but in Luke 9, 57 through 62, there's three men that come up to Jesus. And each time, you know, he challenges something that they're holding on to. Um, you know, for the first guy, following Jesus is more important than worrying about where you're going to stay that night. For the second guy, following Jesus is more important than family, even. For the third guy, again, another, another family. Um, the, the second guy is kind of a cultural duty. But the, the third guy is, you know, he just wants to say goodbye to his family. And Jesus says to him, No one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Um, it's, it's kind of the same language that was used in Hebrews. Like, if, you had an oppor- if they had an opportunity to return, they had an opportunity to return the country if they want to. But they didn't want to. They wanted to press on for the heavenly kingdom. Um, again, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. God is a jealous God. You... You know, you'll hate, you'll hate the one and love the other, or to be devoted to one and despise the other. And in this case, God uses the example of money. Um, but this is not just a sense, you don't do this just out of a sense of duty. Again, God is a very great reward, which is why Jesus, you know, gives us the parable of the treasure hidden in the field and this, the following parable about the, great, the pearl of great price. Um, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had, and bought that field. Again, it's an all-in mentality. Everything about yourself is pointed towards this kingdom and pointed towards God. So, the call of God's king. God is creator and king. He deserves to be preeminent, which is kind of a $10 word, but it just means that God is not just important, but that he's of first importance in your life. And, you know, extent... So, so the idea of God's kingdom is kind of a, an abstract one, but it's also a very practical one in the sense when you understand that God's, God's kingdom is about his rule in your heart and in, and in people's hearts. Like, it's not, it's not defined by geography. It's no longer about the land of Canaan. It's about your heart. Are you letting God into your heart? Um, and extending his rule in your life and in the lives around you is your top priority. You seek first the kingdom. And it's, it's important, the, the chronology of it, the timing of it is important, because when you seek first the kingdom, it gives context to the rest of your decisions. And the beauty of it is you, you go beyond kind of the, the list of specific sins, and you start to understand how even your non-moral decisions, like a lot of the ones we were praying about, like where do I go 
You know, what do I do in this situation? Do I take this job? They're all given context by how they add or detract from your ability to extend God's rule in your own life and in the lives around you. And I would argue that a lot of the decisions that we, that we think are harmless decisions affect, you know, where you live affects who you interact with. Um, you know, how you spend your, if you spend money on one thing, you can't spend it on another. Um, and so another part about God's rule, it's complete and balanced. We don't get to pick and choose which sins we want to get rid of. We have to get rid of them all. We don't get to pick which fruits of the Spirit we want to bear. You know, if we're an angry person, we don't get to say, well, patience, that's not really my thing. Um, which, in my case, it's not really my thing, but I still have to work on it. Um, and we don't get to pick, we don't get to pick how, we, how we expand God's kingdom. Like, God, God makes it very clear, you make disciples. That's why we talk about discipleship so much, because it's, it's a non-negotiable of being a Christian. Um, you are discipled and you make disciples. And then success in this call is faithful obedience. You know, like, like Abraham and Sarah, over the long haul, we have, to be, we have to remain in the same spot to which we are called. Um, and I mean spot not in a sense of location, but <clears throat> in a sense of kind of direction. All right, so hopefully this is not getting too dry. But. So non-moral decisions. We talk about these things a lot, and we get really confused by, you know, how does God want me to do this? Um, you know, where to live, who to marry, what kind of job to have, a career to pursue, what stuff can I buy or should I buy, what church to go to, how to spend, save money, what school to go to, how to spend time, how many kids to have and how to have them. By that I mean adoption versus having them on yourself. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, could probably take that out. <laughs> Um, yeah, so these are all non-moral decisions that we wrestle with. Like, they're part of life. And we can either see them as a harmless thing, you know, God's indifferent to them, they don't, they don't have any bearing on his kingdom, or we can see them as a means to build his kingdom. All right, so here's just a quick thing about how we think about making decisions. Like, sometimes we think that, okay, there's an action, I have a reaction, Everyone in my position would do the same thing. Like, there's, no, there's nothing in the middle. You go straight from one to the other. But in reality, if you put you know, five people in the same situation, they're going to have different reactions, or three people in this case. Um, so what, what causes us to have different reactions to things or situations? Um, part of it's our personality. You know, we have, we have things that we come by naturally. Um, you know... But part of it's the, the values and assumptions that we've accumulated over our lives. Um, and so I would argue that your values and assumptions shape your personality. Like your personality is a very moldable thing, even though we think it as a concrete thing. Um, it's a very moldable thing. And so what we're doing in renewing our minds is affecting our values. Like we're getting rid of the values that the world has given us, you know, kind of comfort, affluence, you know, things that we just assume are important, safety. Um, and we're replacing them with God. Um, so how do we get God's call wrong? Um, well, we talk about, first of all, we... T- 
you're going to make me work. <laughs> so Leon wants an example of how different values affect your reaction. Um, there's actually a document in the Discipleship Handbook that talks about this. Um, and the example Eric gives in that document is, you know, say you're, you're in a crowded, I think, subway car, and someone steps on your foot. Like, someone who, you know, that's, you know, they live, someone who comes from, like, a place where there's tons of people, and, you know, they're kind of always jostling for position. It's not a big deal. You know, you move on. You know, someone who kind of has a chip on their shoulder, you know, might take that as an affront. Like, that's disrespecting me. We need to fight now. Um, <laughs> now, if you're, if you're small like me, then you have to, you have to weigh, <laughs> weigh the outcome before you do that, even. Um, but that's, I mean, that's kind of an extreme example, but, yeah. There's, yeah, there's other examples. I would challenge you to go back and, at the end, I'm going to challenge you to go back and think about an area of your own life, and you can kind of play this game with it. Um, so getting it wrong. When we, I think we're, we're getting it wrong when we're talking about being called to specifics. Like when, we're getting, when we talk about being called to Detroit or being called to even be a pastor or to be a doctor, um, I think that I don't see that we have that, that kind of foot to stand on in Scripture. Um, there, it does talk plenty about callings. But if you look at it, it's really maybe 12, 18 guys spread out across three, 4,000 years of history. That's not very many. Um, and so the rest of us have had this kind of, this, we, well, we have scripture, which is a huge thing that most people, even Abraham, didn't have. So it's, it's, we know who our God is. God has revealed himself through scripture. He's given us everything we need for godliness, both through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the direction of his word. <clears throat> so, so I want us to get away, and you can argue with me later about this, but get away from thinking about life in terms of, well, there's like a right and a wrong way to, there's a right place and a wrong place to live. Um, there's, only, like, there's only one place that you've been called to. There's only one person you've been called to marry. There's only one thing you can do. Um, I'll make sense of this in a second. That sounds crazy. But, um, but so getting it wrong, we assume having a preeminent God means avoiding sin. Um, and what I mean by that is we, we look at Scripture, we see specific lists of sin, we say, as long as I don't do those, I'm good. But God isn't so much com- concerned about the details, I'd argue, as he is about your direction. Now, you see Abraham failing again and again. But what set him apart was his direction, as we saw in Hebrews. <clears throat> and so, because, because we, think, we think serving God is just about not sinning, we, may, we are free to make non-moral decisions um, you know, without, without a compass, so to speak. And because we don't have a compass, we use the same compass that everyone else is using around us. Um, you know, our friends and our family, and our community, and our world has values. And we probably don't even notice them because they're so natural to us. But we have built-in assumptions. Like, <clears throat> like when you're a student, you have to spend all your time studying. Is a good example. <laughs> um, or that being a parent means, being a good parent means 
getting your kid into the best school that they can get into, you know, the best academic and athletic opportunities that you can find. Um, you know, give them everything that you can um, in, in terms of propping them up for worldly success. And in talking, in t- one of the huge dangers about talking, like, about calling or not being called is that we place ourselves beyond the accountability of, of Christians and of God by, by claiming God's, God's kind of signature, his seal of approval on our lives. You know, maybe some of you have moved to Detroit and have talked with your families about, and your families have been, you know, very, very nice, and they said, well, I'm, I know you feel called to that, but that's just not for me. Um, you know, I feel called to, to do this job. I don't, I don't feel called to do evangelism. I don't feel called to do whatever. Um, you know, I feel called to live a comfortable life. They won't say that, but, um, but that's, that's what we do. Like, as soon as we say God called us to something, I mean, who's gonna, who's gonna step up and question that? Um, and another, another thing we fall into, or two things we fall into, we either, we either revel in not doing anything, or we wallow in it. We can be comfortable sitting around because God never put up a neon sign in front of us. He never wrote it on a billboard that said, you have to, you know, you have to help your neighbor Joe out. Um, you know, you have to witness to your friend. Um, or we can, you know, so that's the people who enjoy doing nothing. There's people, like a lot of people when they go to college or start thinking about careers or places to live or who to marry, they're, they get fearful of making the wrong decision. And so there's like this anxiety and fear that just paralyzes them like because they don't want to make the wrong decision. And, you know, that's a, that's a good idea, but, it's, but it renders you ineffective for the kingdom. Um, it's, it's good to want to please God, but he doesn't, he doesn't care to tell you his specific plan for your life. He just wants you to, to look at him, walk towards him, and the details take care of themselves. As we saw, like, seek first the kingdom, <clears throat> and all these things will be added unto you. So getting it right um, means giving God, again, first importance by intentionally, because it doesn't come naturally to your sinful self, Expanding his rule, which means decreasing sin, increasing godliness in our lives and the lives of those around us. And structuring the details of our lives, even the non-moral decisions, in such a way as to maximize our ability to grow God's kingdom, both from within and without. And so for me why I think this is worth talking about and why I'm drawing the contrast between some parts of our call and Abraham's call is that I, I think our sense of calling has created a great sense of confusion in our, in our walks. And when we get it right, you know, we can start <clears throat> talking with Christians from other cultures and circumstances because we know where they're headed. You know, we can, we can agree on the goal. The goal is God. You know, we can, we can talk about what's, maybe the, the best way to get there, or what does it look like for you, but we have a common goal. We're not at odds with each other like we often think we are. Um, and it allows identification and removal of distractions as well as concrete sin. 
And these distractions I'm talking about are kind of the, the reference points the world holds up for us. Um, they're what the world says is important. At, you know, academic success. You know, having, a, having money, cars, houses. Um, being, a, being a good dad who takes their kids to sports games. Um, you know, what, whatever, whatever those values in your life that, don't, that aren't God, but that you're focused on, um, are distractions. And it's hard to name them as sins because they're not named as sins in Scripture. But they keep you from building God's kingdom. And so they're not, they're not less dangerous than sins. Because even a small deviation, even thinking that, you know, being, being a good Christian parent means, um, you know, the same thing as being a good, <clears throat> a good worldly parent, um, will lead you, lead you in different directions. You know, over time, you'll end up a long way from the kingdom of heaven. Um, if you're pursuing these things. But, I mean, I can't, I don't think I can create in you a sense of the weight of that. Like the weight of our distractions' ability to take us away from God. Because, I mean, I think it has to, you have to pull it back over time. Um, You have to renew your mind over time. Um, But when you do understand your calling, and when you do you know, understand that faithfulness just means obedience. You're able to persevere in that calling, you know, to expand God's rule in your heart and in the hearts of those around you, regardless of how you feel. You know, whether a lot of times we, we pray for God's peace in a situation, which is an okay thing to pray for, but sometimes making disciples will be uncomfortable. Like, you'll have to say things that you don't really want to say because you know it's going to start a fight. Um... You have to admit your own sin in that process. Like, it's not always a comfortable experience. And so we, we can't confuse comfort with God's peace. Um, and circumstances. In Abraham's life, you see at least two instances where he made a decision apart from God. Going There's a, a famine in Canaan, and he went to Egypt. And he lied for his own safety. And he was richly rewarded for that in worldly terms. Pharaoh, Pharaoh blessed him as, you know, the brother of a beautiful woman. Um, and the second one is when he and Sarah get their heads together and say, well, let's have a son through Hagar. They actually have a son and God doesn't comment on it. And for 13 years, they're probably thinking, we did it. We're good. Like, God was silent, but we took care of it. We got you, God. And you even see that in chapter 17 when Abraham's like, can't Ishmael, like we already got a son, God. Can't Ishmael be the, be the guy who the promise comes through? Um, so, and a lot of times I think we measure, we measure our decisions in terms of what happens. God never promises you anything beyond himself and persecution. Um, but just throwing that in there. That's promised to you. Um, so, so getting closer to God doesn't mean that you're going to have a better house, a better car. It doesn't mean that your family is going to work better. Um, but you get God. And that's an, I mean, that's an awesome thing. And so, yeah, so we, regardless of feelings and circumstances and results, we can persevere because we know what our call is and we know what success looks like in that call.
So here is the application. Um, yeah, take it or leave it. But pick one non-moral choice in your life and ask how. And again, non-moral choices you can take from my list or take from your own list. But you know, marriage, jobs, locations. <clears throat> how can this detail of my life add or detract from expanding God's rule in my life and in the lives of those around me? And when you when you find those answers. Um, and again, there's a lot of freedom in how you go about this, um, but your direction is, you're not free to choose your direction. That has to be the kingdom of God, um, or you won't end up there. When you find things that detract from your ability to expand God's rule in your life, you know, maybe, maybe you go home and you watch television for three hours after, you know, a hard day's work. Um, and maybe for you, that doesn't do anything. But maybe for you, that takes away from time that you could have spent and could have spent reading God's word or could have spent with your family, training them up. Um, so so look at your life. Take out the things that detract from from expanding God's rule and then kind of shuffle things around, shuffle your resources around in order to maximize your ability to expand God's kingdom. You know, if you're spending your money fo- on, on things you you don't need to make disciples around you. Um, stop spending money on those things. Give that money to people who, you know, give that money to organizations like Hope for Haiti so they can make disciples somewhere else. Give that money to the church so we can fund the work of discipleship here. Um, that's all I got. But So take that. Yeah, take that home and wrestle it over. And I, I hope that that out of this, like, even, I hope that you, you feel freed up by this, um, freed up from that paralysis, that anxiety of getting the details right or wrong. Um, and that you, that you can start seeing every part of your life as an opportunity to glorify God. And that even though that's an abstract thought, I think the kingdom of heaven gives us a good a good framework um, and expanding God's rule in our own lives and in the lives around us gives us a good sense of what that means, you know, giving God glory. So, yeah, wrestle with that for the next week and the rest of your life. Um, yeah.